my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Sylvester Stallone. Do you have a Sylvester Stallone impersonation, Will? Tango and Cash, Cash and Tango. Sorry, that's Jack. <laughs> Jack Palance. Uh, do I have? A, I guess I do. I mean, doesn't everyone have a Sylvester Stallone? I don't. <laughs> Wait, let me close my eyes. Hey, 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 uh, cradle the balls, work the shaft. <laughs> Which, if people don't know <laughs> what that is, is that uh, Stallone, supposedly, on a set in Vancouver, while there was a break during filming, he went to his trailer and brought a young female intern with him. Okay. And he left the microphone on in private, and he was heard saying... Cradle the ball, stroke the shaft. It's, I have to correct you. It was work the shaft. Okay. Because, you know, uh, he has a strong work ethic. <laughs> and this line was broadcast to the entire set through some kind of PA system. It's one of those tales that's very apocryphal. It's like Richard Gere and the gerbil, except this one's probably true. <laughs> so, right off the bat, I gotta say... I love Sylvester Stallone. Oh, me too. I love him. Yeah. So before we tackle kind of specific movies, let's talk about the thing that I know that we both embrace together, the Rocky movies. Of course. The thing about sports movies for me, don't like sports, mm-hmm. love sports movies, especially the Rocky ones, because Rocky, the film series, has such a bonkers evolution throughout that as a whole piece, it is... Almost perfect to my eyes. It parallels Sylvester Stallone's career perfectly. And when you've gone through it all, you really feel like you've been on a journey with the character. Sylvester Stallone was born out of his mother's womb, had a little difficulty getting out. So the doctor used forceps, which paralyzed a part of his face, Mm -hmm. which is why he sounds the way that he sounds. And he has a bit of a like Jean Chrétien type drooping lip. And he was a guy that grew up in very working class, if not poor environments. He moved to Hollywood. But I do know that he was in a softcore porn movie called The Party at Kitty and Studs, later released as The Italian Stallion. That's really where his life story begins for me. Well, don't forget that Stallone also acted in the erotic theatrical production, which would later become Radley Metzger's score. And yeah, all of my interests. And of course, his second role after The Party at Kitty and Studs in a film was in Bananas where he played one of the subway muggers who beats up Woody Allen. So Stallone, with his gang of Hollywood cronies, would just write scripts. They wanted to make it big and stick it to the man. Famously, he wrote a script about a bunch of L.A. screenwriters who capture a producer to force them to make their movie. Oh, that's like movie 43. Exactly. (laughs) And eventually, he wrote the script for Rocky, which... The deal was that if someone wanted to produce this film, he had to star in it. I want to get back to Italian Stallion, a.k.a. Party at Kitty and Studs. Have you ever seen it? No. Why would I watch that? Because it's amazing. (laughs) So here's what happens in... uh, This is a movie that he made for $200 so that he could get off up out of the bus station where he was living at the time. Uh, The movie begins with him uh, running through Central Park. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he goes home to his hot girlfriend, Kitty. And uh, they engage in some simulated sex. There are a lot of scenes of him, like, skipping through the park. And then they have their swinging friends over, and they have an orgy. And the last ten minutes of the movie is them all nude playing Ring Around the Rosie together. Uh, The sex is simulated, I'm sad to say, but you do see Stallone's dick in some fleeting moments. Um, It's one of those movies that if you go to any sex shop, you will see it in their celebrity porn section. Um, You know, next to Tila Tequila or someone like that. Uh, The movie's not very good. 
All right, back to Rocky, the first one. Have you seen the trailer for the Italian Stallion when no. they when they re-released it later? They re- they re-released it after Stallone became famous. Yeah, and they had this this porn queen called uh, Gail Palmer, where she says, "I just spent uh, six weeks in the dark with everyone's uh, favorite movie star, uh, Sylvester Stallone." You should check it out if you want if you're interested in film history at all. Oh no, I'm not. I'm just interested in sports movies, specifically the Rocky one. Rocky one, that's an okay movie. But let's skip to Rocky four. No, I want to <laughs> wait. Let's talk about Rocky one for a bit. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful film. Oh, I love it? Rocky. I mean, yeah. Uh, here are the things that people forget about Rocky one. First of all, the fight with Apollo Creed, not even announced until over halfway through the movie. So well, it's mostly a kitchen sink drama up until that point. Yeah. First half of the movie is about Rocky. He's a loan shark who works for the great Joe Spinell. Who Sylvester Stallone and Joe Spinell were good friends in real life. Uh, he's got this asshole friend, Polly, and he's got and who has this uh, sister who I think we we're actually supposed to believe in the first one is mildly like mentally disabled. That, that disappears in the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. That never comes back. The whole first half of the movie is just him being a bum from the neighborhood. Uh, he beats Spider Rico at a fight, but nobody cares. Goes on some dates, falls in love, teaches a kid to stay on the right path. You know, beats up some guys as a loan shark, or does he not? Be, I mean, he's a bit of a gentle giant. And it all climaxes in what people remember about the film, which is this big fight with Apollo Creed, played by Carl Weathers. Stallone, I think, basically has two ideas as an auteur. Um, he didn't direct the first Rocky, but he wrote it, and it's essentially his film. I would consider Stallone the most auteurist action star out of all the major ones. And with the possible exception of Steven Seagal. His two ideas are any bum might have a one in a million shot to prove himself, to prove that he was more than just a bum from the neighborhood. His other idea is that the world is a hateful place and that war is our natural state, and we have to get used to that idea. These two twin competing ideas are the Rocky series and the Rambo series. Mm -hmm. And so Rocky was a huge success. It took this little kid from nothing and made him a Hollywood superstar where his ego would run out of control. Do you have any funny Stallone stories? Not really. I guess we already shot our wad, so to speak, on that. (laughs) uh, Work the balls, cradle the shaft. (laughs) Well, Stallone is famous for many things. Being short. Or not as tall as you'd expect him to be. Which is something that becomes apparent in any movie when you see him next to a person. Like, I was watching Copland this afternoon, he's, like, walking down the street with, like, Ray Liotta or somebody, and, like, Ray Liotta is towering over him, and it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Uh, He really wants to be an artist. Like, he has aspirations to make something important. Whether that translates to the unmade Edgar Allan Poe movie he wanted to make for years, where he would star and direct in it. (laughs) Or a film like Paradise Alley, which was his directorial debut. Before we get to that, didn't he, for a while, want to make a movie about the murder of Biggie and Tupac? Yes, yeah, he did. He has a lot of ideas. At one point, he talked about Rambo 5 being about him fighting a werewolf creature of some kind. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone in interviews is very open, and like Quentin Tarantino, says a lot of nonsense about what's coming up next. When did you see Rocky for the first time? The first one? Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, and it didn't really make that much of an impact on me. Really? I saw it, I think, when I was eight years old, and I really liked it, which is weird to me now when I watch it, because, like, why did I sit through that whole first hour that was just... But I think, you know, the the power of the montages and the training stuff and the fight, 
I mean, I think I might have mentioned this before, but when I was a kid, after seeing Rocky, I got my parents to buy me like a toy punching bag. I think it may have come from the fact that my dad probably sat me down and said, this is a very important movie. And because of that first hour, I wasn't able to connect with it until the end. And I remember being a little bit surprised as a child that the hero would lose at the end of the film. Yeah, but even as a kid, like that, that seemed like the perfect. Uh... Well, one of us is smarter than the other, obviously. And, <laughs> and me being a kid, that when I saw Starship Troopers, I went, well, they didn't win the war at the end of the movie. You were a kid watching Starship Troopers, like, this seems like an endorsement of fascism. <laughs> the uh, critics are all wrong. The other thing about Rocky is I think it seemed like a very grown up movie to me at the time. You know, a- anything that was accessible but grown up seeming, I-, I was a sucker for. As a yeah, kid. I didn't really care about that. And I think that probably one of the reasons that I didn't attach to it that much either is that it had all this mythology behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Rocky represents something beyond the movies when you talk about it. Like, as a kid on the playground, I probably knew who Rocky was Mm -hmm. and what that entailed before even seeing the movie. Just like you know what Rambo is. Right. Which I did not see till much later. No, me neither. Is there any other action star, again, that has two iconic figures as much as Sylvester Stallone has. Maybe, but I can't think of any. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger has Conan and he has the Terminator, but that's but Conan's pretty much not as big as Rambo is. And usually when people think of Conan, they don't necessarily think of Arnold Schwarzenegger automatically. Yeah. They think of him as like a fantastic. They think of uh, who was the guy in the 2011 Conan. <laughs> um, you know, was McBeardo. Is it, it Jason Momoa? <laughs> that's what yeah. It was. <laughs> All those Jason Momoa fans are like, he is the one true Conan. <laughs> uh, Rambo, well, the first one is really good. Oh, the first one's a classic, I would say. Again, people forget, just like Rocky, they forget what the first movie in the franchise is actually like. The first one, I mean, it's a real kind of, uh, maybe it's overstating the case to say it's a stripped-down thriller, but it's a very, it's a much more suspenseful movie than the later ones. It doesn't have the same pyrotechnics that the later ones have. and doesn't you, have the same level of wanton violence that the other ones have. And Stallone isn't on screen as much as he is in the later ones. So, so much of the first one is about like Richard Crenna as the, uh, you know, his former commander or whatever he is, like trying to find him. And really Stallone's big moment is in the last 15 minutes of the movie. Where he has that big giant speech mm-hmm. that in the original version they shot and tested, he commits suicide at the end. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that shot actually appears in Rambo 4 when he's having like a nightmare sequence. Oh, it was a movie that, you know, this one and especially the next one kind of hit on this idea that was, I guess, really part of the zeitgeist in the Reagan 80s that, you know, because Vietnam had become this sort of, you know, stain on the national conscience the veterans were abandoned. It wasn't like the veterans coming home after the Second World War where they were greeted as heroes. They came back after Vietnam and they were regarded as sort of, you know, as occupying says, traitors. At or the end of Rambo 2, he's like, oh, yeah. oh, I wish they loved us as much as we love our country. Oh. I sound like a southern hillbilly of some kind. Reagan actually gave a shout out to Rambo. He in, did? In one of his speeches. Yeah, he, he made some joke about Rambo being a Republican or something. But the thing about Rambo confusingly called First Blood Part 2 yes. is that people slot him in as the Reagan hero uh-huh. right of the 80s when the movie itself is distrustful of the government that's what the whole film was about he gets betrayed by the governmental bodies that are supposed to help him go on the mission and that's why at the end he's like oh and he shoots up all the machines yeah I think we're supposed to think those people are like Jimmy Carter or something <laughs> like there's that famous line in the second one where he's like uh when he's when he's gonna go into Vietnam, he's like, "We're gonna win this time, right?" I think the movie, you know, maybe the maybe this isn't part of the text of the movie because I haven't seen it in forever. But um, we're supposed to feel that like 
Vietnam was a winnable conflict and somehow we we on the home front failed them or something and now they're going to go in and win it this time. I didn't get that sense watching it again actually today. Okay. I gave it another chance. I liked it more now. The director George P. Cosmatos or something like that is also the director of Cobra which is very literally about a fascist police officer. Yeah, he's like a turbocharged Dirty Harry or something. <laughs> so I don't want to give uh, the film too much subversive um, leeway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, you can interpret it however you want, but your reading of it is probably the right one. I, I want to make a comment on his career from between Rocky and First Blood, which is that he really didn't become an action star until the mid-80s. In those early years, you see him going back and forth between Rocky movies, which were successful, and his other movies, which were not. And there was this long period when it he seemed to be grasping for, you know, respectability. Uh, I know that re- in, in a quote that seems like hilarious in retrospect, Roger Ebert said he might become the next Marlon Brando after he saw Rocky, <laughs> which, uh, you know, did not happen. But he would do movies like Fist, where he played... With Norman Jewison. Norman Jewison, where he played a Jimmy Hoffa-type character, or Victory, the John Huston soccer movie, or, I don't know, like other sort of prestige-type movies. Well, you look at his directorial debut, Paradise Alley, and that is such a grasp for like Oscars and importance and making something that will last. Watching it this week for the second time in my life, I uh, regretted that I watched it a second time. It's uh, it's it's boring and I didn't like it. You can feel Stallone wanting to make another Rocky so badly. It has its exact same structure. Especially like the last third of the movie where it's like has the it's not boxing, it's wrestling, but otherwise it's the same thing except basically in this movie Stallone is playing Burgess Meredith's character and you know it's a closer relationship obviously, but and it rings kind of hollow and it doesn't really work. It's Stallone tackling material that he doesn't quite understand and his approach to it makes it lax and undramatic. Well, yeah, it has too many characters, first of all. I think you mentioned that it seems like it could have been a five-episode miniseries that was condensed into a movie. But also, it's just not as authentic as Rocky is. The Philly that it uh, depicts could be any sort of modern working-class area of the type that Stallone was well-acquainted with. In this, it's set in, I don't know, the 20s, um, and it has this movie quality to it. Backlot. Yeah, backlot quality. And Stallone, the character he plays, unlike Rocky, who's a bit of a simpleton, in this one he's kind of a... Wise-ass. Uh, yeah, a, a wise-ass... Uh, Just kind of lazy. Mouth. If he tried hard enough, he'd probably be able to succeed. I enjoy his performance in the movie. He's quite likable, but it's, it just doesn't ring as true as Rocky did. And it's not dramatically compelling in any fashion, especially compared to Rocky. And the fact that in this movie, Stallone is the trainer, he's not the fighter... It just gives it that one extra level of remove. The movie looks good. Yes. Um, Shot by a famed cinematographer. I can't remember his name right now. And for Stallone's directorial debut, it's certainly, you know... Ambitious. Yeah, very much so. He even does the theme song. He sings it. (laughs) When it started playing, I was like, wait, is that Sylvester Stallone singing? Where was Frank? He could have sung it. He's a singer of the family. Frank Stallone uh, definitely made his presence felt later on. (laughs) And after Paradise Alley, his next directorial effort was Rocky II. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching on one of the special features of the Expendable film, there's an hour-long documentary about Stallone's directorial career. And he talks about how after seeing Paradise Alley with an audience and seeing it tank so badly, he had to go to the set of Rocky II to direct almost right after. Mm -hmm. And what he did is he 
all the kind of fanciness or Oscar baitness mm-hmm. he removed completely from Rocky Two to make it the most simple film possible. Mm-hmm. So where Rocky One was a kitchen sink drama, Rocky Two is just kind of a, a straightforward drama about a dumb guy, a very <laughs> dumb guy. Who he, can't even read. Yeah, he's dumber in the second one than he is in the first one. <laughs> I have a very soft spot for Rocky 2. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my least favorite of the series. Uh, Rocky 5 is my least favorite, as it is everyone's. But Rocky 2, you know, Rocky 2 is serviceable. It's competent. The problem is, Rock, Rocky 1, the stakes are, this fight is where Rocky can prove that he's a man. Like, this is his fight to prove that he was something more than just a bum from the neighborhood. And Rocky II, it's he's trying to prove that he was a little bit more than that. <laughs> yes. He can, he can prove that he did it twice. His wife goes in a coma just to come out of it to say, yeah. beat him, Rocky! And like he spends a lot of the movie trying to afford a house or yes. trying to read the lines on a commercial. And it just doesn't quite have the stakes. But Rocky II is a necessary step to get to Rocky Three. Where do you go... When your character is as successful as he can be. It's a conundrum that a lot of franchises struggle with. Usually they just do a hard reboot. First of all, Rocky 3 has the same plot as The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> D- did you ever notice that? I never noticed that. Okay. Uh, it, it, in Rocky 3, having won the second fight with, with Apollo Creed, he's on top of the world. Burgess Meredith keeps booking him for fights with bums, no names, you know, to keep him winning, to keep him on the covers of magazines, to keep the endorsement deals going. Uh, so he's become complacent, you know, uh, whatever the lyrics of Eye of the Tiger are. But then along comes this challenger, Bane, a.k.a. Mr. T, yes. uh, who writes... Has a lot of disposable income because he sees all of Rocky's fights. Yeah. So, you know, Rocky or Batman goes into the fight thinking, come on, I'm Rocky slash Batman. I've, I've got this guy. Gets horrifically beaten. Then he has to go back into the hell pit or the gym in San Francisco with Apollo Creed. And uh, be trained the black way. <laughs> yeah. Rediscover the eye of the tiger and then go back to Gotham City and beat Bane or, or Mr. T. Do you like Rocky Three? Yeah, I love it. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's like a piece of shit in some in some. It's way, a comic but, book. That's what it is. Yeah. The opening has him fighting uh, Hulk Hogan, a.k.a. Thunderlips in the film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isn't wrestling fake? Yeah. Um, I like the part in that fight when Rocky, like, looks really angry and he takes off his gloves so that you know it's real. <laughs> I mean, Mr. T kills Burgess Meredith. Yeah, that's right. And, and then, then Burgess Meredith shows up in part five as a as a ghost, is it? Or no, as a memory. Yes. Well, in the original ending, he appeared as a ghost, but they kind of reshuffled that. Rocky Four, pure cartoon, Dolph Lundgren. Love Rocky Four. You know, How do you feel about people that say that Rocky Four is a big piece of shit? Through some lenses, they're correct. Yes. Well, comparing it to Rocky 1. Everything the first one stood for is gone. Yes. And it's just a jingoistic, you know, Reagan piece of shit. A film where a fighter can be so good that he can turn the entire country to start rooting for him (laughs) instead of the person that they've come to see. And of course, it literally ends with Rocky draped in the American flag (laughs) saying, basically having won the Cold War. (laughs) Yeah. I love Rocky Four. And do you remember the scene where James Brown sings Living in America? Yep, right before Apollo Creed bites the bullet. Yeah, to bamboozle Apollo Creed. Uh, Oh, we should maybe mention something about the Rocky film's relationship with race. Yes. I mean, that's definitely the dark 
underbelly. Well, as I mentioned, the Rocky three uh, implications of how Rocky can win. Well, uh, the first one, you know, I think it was Eddie Murphy who in Raw had that that routine about, have you ever noticed that Italians try to beat up black guys whenever a Rocky movie comes out? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think Rocky represented this kind of like lost, you know, Italian-American boxer that got superseded by, you know, the Muhammad Ali's of the world. Mm-hmm. And so Rocky was the sort of wish fulfillment fantasy to regain that position again. And then so in Rocky three, the franchise has its second black villain in a row. Stallone or somebody realized, well, hey, we got to cover our asses. We got to yeah. have Apollo Creed come back as a good guy. And me and Apollo can hug and dance in the water in one slow of, motion. One of the most homoerotic <laughs> scenes ever in a major film. Rocky four, you know, uh, leaving that behind for a sec. Rocky Four is great because you learn that it's like eighty minutes long. Oh, uh, perfect. Uh, Drago, of course, takes steroids, um, but Rocky does it the old-fashioned way, which is taking logs and dragging them through the snow. Um, even though, of course, we know that Sylvester Stallone himself has been detained <laughs> at the airport uh, <laughs> with a briefcase full of human growth hormones. Listen, he's a little guy and he has to be bigger. <laughs> it's not about the artist; it's about the art. Will my the only flaw of Rocky Four is it doesn't have the face. <laughs> famous theme song in it oh but that score man is so good that montage score i just put it on like during the day when i'm doing something else i don't remember what the guy's name is he only composed three scores rocky four staying alive and transformers the movie rocky four uh that has the frank stallone music too doesn't it, oh, does it? yeah Ooh, i blocked that out of my mind yeah I guess. i'm pretty i'm pretty sure frank stallone prominent twitter republican <laughs> Ugh, brother of sylvester stallone yeah and Rocky Five, I think it's better than people think that it is. I've only seen it once. Because he was trying to recreate the magic of Rocky One, yeah. but it's at a weird impasse between both of them. He even brought back the director of Rocky One. You definitely couldn't go beyond the fourth one in that no. direction. And also, by the time Rocky Five came out, Stallone's career was a little bit on the downturn. He'd had some, I yeah. think he'd had some flops. And it, Rocky, uh, Rocky Five, I think, came out around the same time as Rambo Three, which was a disappointment. Well, Rambo Three was everything that people thought Rambo was, mm-hmm. which is you know propaganda, just shooting up nameless bad guys left and right. You are as far away from First Blood as you can get. Rambo Three is the one where Rambo teams up with the Taliban. Yep, to, to, to take to, down the Russians. Yeah, and in fact, originally it ended with it was dedicated to the brave freedom fighters of afghanistan but then after 2001 they scrubbed that from all the did they yeah seriously wow well okay before we get to the final uh rocky that starts Sylvester Stallone, let's kind of go through his career this is going to be the longest episode we've ever done that's okay i love it like you mentioned before Sylvester Stallone had a weird career which is that after a certain point of making those dramas early he decided to just go you know i'm just gonna sell out to hollywood i'll yeah. do whatever i have to he do he made he did over the top because i think he made 10 million or 15 million dollars i think at the time it was the most one actor had been paid for one performance and it was more than half the budget and over the top as anyone knows is an awful film oh i love over the top i love it too but it's an awful film yeah I, you know i only really love the last 20 minutes no i love the all over the, every time oh. he appears on screen and there's those rivulets of sweat going down him and he's shining like he's made of a diamond oh come on all that shit with him and the kid ah love it boring ah so good but i love the arm wrestling tournament at the end uh i mean Ugh, turn it sideways arm wrestling i mean that's the movie's first problem the least cinematic of sports uh, i disagree and yet somehow filmmaker Manaham golan makes it cinematic with his loving close-ups of Stallone's <laughs> agonized face as he's as he's arm wrestling. This I is watched also... it with a crowd, and wow, everybody was so into it. Here's the thing with Stallone: is that a lot of the times he's treated as a joke, bad actor, 
uncharismatic. All those things are wrong. Mm. But even in Over the Top, if you buy into the premise, you can really get involved. Even that shitty stuff was his kid. I would love to see it with an audience. And he made a bunch of other kind of forgettable films. Stop or my mom will shoot. Which I've seen. Uh, have you? Yeah, I, I have seen it, but I remember almost nothing from it. Except he says the title in the movie. <laughs> It's utterly awful. Uh, I mean, let's mention Tango and Cash. I know. I was building my way up to Tango and Cash. Because Tango and Cash is, I think, the ultimate 80s action film. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the last movie to be released theatrically in the 80s. Is that true? Yes. Wow. Well, it went out with a bang. You were, we were just talking about it a few days ago, and we both agreed that it's a film that doesn't have the kind of respect that it deserves. It is so absurd. It takes everything just to the brink of parody, but doesn't quite cross over. And it's from uh, the director that uh, was a screenwriter for Andrei Tarkovsky. Yes. The filmmaker's name is Andrei Konchalovsky. And he um, also co-wrote uh, Andrei Rublev. And uh, he directed uh, The Night. Cracker in 3D. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. And he did Runaway Train. Yeah. With the Oscar-nominated Eric Roberts performance. Runaway Train's a great film, and when I saw The Nutcracker in 3D in its theatrical run, I laughed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tango and Cash, you're going to laugh a lot as well. You're not quite sure if you're laughing with the movie <laughs> or at the movie. I think it's a mix of both. But it, it's like, it's perfect. You know, the dynamic between Stallone and Kurt Russell with their their Howard Hawks-like <laughs> quipping is so great. You know, the button-down Sylvester Stallone who's like an accountant Speak- or some kind of Rambo. Oh, speaking of butts, how about that scene when they're in prison? <laughs> And, you know, it's got Jack Palance in it, it one has of his quintessential performances. Tango, Cash. Cash and Tango. <laughs> it was the same year he was in Batman, too. So that was an amazing year for Jack Palance performances. And it features, you know, stars of the stars. Robert Zadar, Clint <laughs> Howard. Uh... Who's the woman in it? Is it Terry Hatcher? Yes, it yeah. is Terry Hatcher. Yeah. Oh, you know, you look up at the sky, it's just blank because they're all a tango and gas. <laughs> it's, it's a movie that still just doesn't get enough respect, I think. And in the 90s, Stallone had a bit more of a rough go at it. Like films like Judge Dredd, Demolition Man, or as I like to call them, the Rob Schneider duology. <laughs> Yeah, well, Cliffhanger, I, I think... Was, it's, yeah, a big hit. But Cliffhanger feels, in retrospect, like a bit of a last hurrah. Mm-hmm. After, after that, you know, like Judge Dredd, Daylight, Assassins, these are pretty high-profile failures, even though they did well enough overseas, mm-hmm. to the point where it prompted a movie like Copland, which was supposed to be, you know, him... You know, turning a new leaf on his career. Now now I'm going to do more serious movies. Yeah, no more of those dumb action pictures. It is the real Stallone, the Rocky Stallone that you know and love. I remember when Copland came out. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big... There was a lot of Oscar hype around Stallone, which ended up amounting to nothing. I remember he hosted SNL. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember that he was, like, being interviewed a lot. Like and wearing glasses in interviews. That, that's when you know. <laughs> Did he take like a deep voice like Jerry Lewis would when he would do interviews? Like, uh, well, he definitely tried to sound a little more thoughtful. Um, but, I've but read. He sounds like Sylvester Stallone. Interviews where Stallone talks about how difficult it is to appear intelligent in any way. He's like, "How can you appear intelligent when you sound like I do?" And when you're as stupid as he is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think Stallone is a stupid man. You no, know, he has street smarts. <laughs> 
Come on. Yeah. Hey, listen. He he apparently likes Edgar Allan Poe. Good on him. <laughs> yeah. You're just making judgments based on the roles, the interviews, and the choices <laughs> that he's made in his career. Yeah, I've seen the films that he's written and directed. <laughs> but isn't he such a great actor, Will? He definitely has his moments. I watched Copland this afternoon for the first time. I'd never seen it. Um, I found it very watchable, but it, you know, it's a movie that if it were released in the film noir cycle in the forties would have been an average film noir. Mm-hmm. I think Stallone's much lauded performance or well, much, not much lauded, much, hyped. much hyped performance yeah. is a little one note, frankly. Well, he doesn't have much to do. No, he's a very passive character. He's surround. I mean, I think his performance compares favorably with Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel, all of whom kind of overdo it a little bit in the movie. Ah, oh, the chewing that scenery. Especially Leota. Yeah, who at one point pops up to shoot a bad guy with a cigarette dangling from his lips like he's in a John Woo film of some kind. Part of the hype around Copland was that he gained, uh, Stallone gained 40 pounds. And him. wow, you'll see it right off the bat. Laying in bed, button-up shirt, all undone. He, got hanging out. He does something with his face in the movie, which is to do, just do this hangdog expression where he gives just like a little bit of a smile. He looks high, frankly, for a lot of the movie. <laughs> and so Copland wasn't the career uh, resurgence that Stallone was ho- uh, hoping for. And so and- the late 90s, early 2000s had a last gasp of theatrical releases. Mm-hmm. And Get Carter, it had Driven. Yes, which tanked. It reunited him with Rennie Harlan, the man who gave him the hit cliffhanger, and the movie just didn't work. Stallone wrote the script for that. I remember it shot in Toronto at our indie racetrack here. We have an indie racetrack? Oh, yeah. Well, we did, at least. I don't know if it's still there. Um, uh, the uh, We had an annual... Maybe we still have it. I'm, I, <laughs> believe it or not, I'm not that into like car racing, but yeah. for, for years we had like the indie race in Toronto, and maybe it's still going. It's one of those movies that I saw a million commercials for and somehow never saw, even though there was that cool yeah. slow motion when he was driving. There was he a goes lot, to driven mode. Yeah, there was a lot of hype around it. And the hype, uh, I think a lot of it involved the fact that he wrote the script. So this was supposed to be a more personal film for him. It was like Rocky on wheels. <laughs> I think it's maybe what the blurb on the DVD said. <laughs> and uh, no also, one went and saw it and tanked. Burt Reynolds was in it too. And it was also the end of his comeback. <laughs> So after this last gasp as the dirt is thrown on his coffin, Stallone went to where great stars go to die, direct to video land. Detox. Um, Avenging Angelo. Yes. Uh, I, I think I See You was the alternate title of one of those films. Detox. Yeah. Have you seen either of these? No. You know what? I made a list of them and I was about to watch them for this podcast and I went, Life is short. Yeah. Why would I watch a movie that everyone says is bad? Yeah. I think I'm good. Fair enough. He also did Spy Kids 3D. Ooh, yeah. Where he played multiple roles. Yeah. He was, I think, the villain, a newscaster, and, oh, man, that was, it was a sad time. So there comes a point in a man's life when, you know, he's he's down, the society has left him for dead, he's a has-been, he's, he's running a restaurant in Philadelphia, just trading stories of when he used to be a boxer. Whoa, that sounds like the plot of Rocky Balboa. His wife, Adrian, has passed away, Ugh. his son is a businessman with no time for him, but you know what a computer simulation shows that... <laughs> He, he could Wait, possibly is this be... Rocky Balboa or some kind of grudge match? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Rocky Balboa, a movie that I saw theatrically with my dad at the Woodbine Cinema. And when he got his ticket taken, my dad said to the ticket guy, you know, I saw the first Rocky here 30 years ago. And was the ticket guy like, all right, old man. 
totally indifferent. But <laughs> did your dad say that every time he went to go see a new Rocky movie? He's like, Rocky Four. I saw the first one here 20 years ago. I mean, there have only been two Rocky movies in my lifetime. <laughs> we got to ask your dad that. Yeah. I have that father-son talk before, yeah. you know, time takes us all. So Rocky <laughs> Rocky Balboa. I also saw it theatrically. Yeah. Mostly on like, eh, why not? Like, I'll go see it. I was definitely like into the idea, you know. <laughs> but I love Rocky Balboa. It's good. It's a very, it's a very personal scene yes. movie. It's a movie that has a lot of heart in it. It's also a very chunky movie, barely competent at times. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of scenes of Rocky speechifying that frankly are a little self-indulgent. But even scenes like that are saved by the fact that it's clearly such a personal expression of Stallone. And, you know, once that montage starts and once he's in Vegas about to do that fight, like given how far fetched the premise is that he's like this 60 year old doing a comeback against, you know, the new Mike Tyson. basically. (laughs) I I mean, the plot makes no sense, but you, you get sucked into it, especially that final fight where you're like, yeah, come on, Rocky, you can do it. Just make it to the end because you're back at a position where it's not about winning. Yeah. It's about just surviving, which is always something that's more compelling. And Rocky Balboa was actually the film that brought Stallone's career back up to snuff. Which led to the revival of his other big franchise, Rambo, in a film titled Rambo. Or John Rambo. Uh, Internationally, yes. Yes. Uh, So I watched this movie this week for the first time since it came out. Mm -hmm. I I think you watched it too. Yep. I saw it in theaters and did not like it when I saw it in theaters. Well, but you liked it this time. Uh, I liked it more than I did when I saw it in theaters, yes. Okay, we had the opposite reaction because mm. I saw it in theaters, very drunk, yeah. uh, and had a... <laughs> in the way you're meant to... Burmese slaughter. Yeah, uh, they explode like ripe tomatoes. I had a great time with it in theaters, I think, because I was very high on the idea of seeing a, a new Rambo movie. Mm. This time, I watched it and said to myself, you know what, I'm not enjoying this. Well, it's a very miserable movie. Mm-hmm. I remember when it came out, a lot of people were really jazzed about how violent it is. But yeah. it's very nihilistic violence. Rambo is a very ugly film mm-hmm. in its worldview and what it depicts. It opens, I was kind of amazed by how it opens, with this like newsreel footage yeah. of, of atrocities. and. Uh, yeah, and... that kind of took me aback. I'm like, how do you, uh, why? One thing that I'll say to the movie's credit is that uh, it's a much more stripped down movie than the second and third Rambo are. It's got a very simple story, you know, Rambo going up river like Apocalypse Now to to stop some um, genocide people in Burma. That's the least clever phrase I've ever come up with. <laughs> genocide people. Genocide people. And it's all about Rambo, who's basically retired at this point. Has, yeah. Has become a freelance blacksmith. Doesn't need to care about anything anymore. You know, life goes on. Why get involved? But he rediscovers his inner love of killing. <laughs> yes, he, I guess. Because there's that montage where we see flashbacks from earlier when he realizes, I used to kill for my country, but now I kill for me. Which I think is a very hateful worldview. I mean, the film ends with this horrifying massacre where 293 people get killed. There's also the scene in the middle that... When it, a village gets bombed. Yeah, like a, a bit of ethnic cleansing where you see like a kid thrown in fire and you see, you know, limbs cut off. And it was at that moment when I said to myself, I'm not enjoying this because <laughs> I, I thought like this is really awful, hateful violence that's very realistic. And the fact that Stallone based it on an actual genocide in Burma... I, I, that's definitely a problem. That's an example of Stallone feeling the need to go, well, this is important. I saw him on Sean Hannity's show, in fact, uh, t- no! talking about no! how, how like this was his cause. 
And I look at that and I think, okay, you you picked this cause just to exploit it in this like action movie self actualization story. And uh, the issue with the film too is that its final thesis seems to be like, you know, you just kill a bunch of people, you get over your problem. Yeah. Go back home where I assume you're gonna murder more people. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's rediscovered his love of killing. Yeah. Um and the movie, there's no suspense. There are no interesting characters aside <sighs> from Rambo. I just love to see an old weathered Sylvester Stallone who seems to have given up on life trudging through another adventure that's what the movie has yes it does which is not nothing i mean because i'd rather see that than a roided up stallone (laughs) teaming up with his friends who do nothing in a movie aka expendables one to three oh yeah those are movies that you know every time they come out i trick myself into going to see them and being like well maybe this one will be good (laughs) hey wait wait uh expendables one has a mickey rourke speech oh yeah where like the, the snot is falling from his nose could have saved her and then I realized what I was sending to hell was myself. <laughs> or, or, or I don't know what the what the line was, but something like that. Uh, Expendables Two is the most self parodic of the series. That's the one where like everyone's there doing their catchphrases. <laughs> Get to the chopper! Chuck Norris is making Chuck Norris jokes. Or do you remember? There's the point when um, Bruce Willis and Schwarzenegger are firing guns and. Schwarzenegger goes, I'll be back. And the other guy says, you're, you're always saying you'll be back. And then he goes off and Schwarzenegger goes, oh, yippee-ki-yay. Ugh, terrible. Dreadful. <laughs> yeah, not good. Uh, so Stallone, looking at his career in this long, endless podcast episode, what we really find is a man that just wants to be liked. How do you come to that conclusion? Well, that's what all of his career choices are based on, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's making something that is seemingly... Uh, from his point of view, intelligent or making something that is populist. Hmm. It's his career has always been a reaction to what has come before. Almost. That, oh, that's interesting. So like, you know, Rocky five is a re- reaction to Rocky four. Yeah. And the way that people, you know, Rocky four was a massive hit, but critically it didn't do well. So Rocky five is return back to the basics. The things that everybody loved. There's also a third category of Stallone movies, which are the ones he made for the money. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the Cobras, the Over the Tops. The, the Stops or My Moms Will Shoots. Uh, the other thing I would say, and it's hardly a unique observation, but it's interesting that the two biggest action stars of the 80s, Stallone and Schwarzenegger, are so very ethnic. Schwarzenegger, obviously being an Austrian bodybuilder, Stallone being very working class Italian, son of immigrants. You know, in the Reagan era, I guess what they were symbolic of was this idea that America's a melting pot where people can come over and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, you know, become great. I mean, when you were, we consider stars that don't have that kind of background, it's tough to find any that do. Even Steven Seagal is miscellaneous. Well, Steven Seagal is like an American who just appropriates other identities. <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme, Belgium. Yeah. Chuck Norris is very American. Yeah, Chuck Norris is very American. Mm-hmm. All right. Stallone, I like him. I love Stallone. I hope he keeps making movies forever, even though he looks like a monster. <laughs> he does look like a monster. Yeah. I mean, he's what, 70 years old? I heard somebody say he looks like a melted cheese sculpture or something. And also, just watching Copland today, I was looking at him thinking, God, it's amazing how human he looks in this. He needs to do one thing before his career ends, and that's team up with his best buddy, 
Jackie Chan. Maybe it'll happen. It actually did happen in a little movie called an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, uh, Stallone wanted uh, Jackie Chan to be the villain in Demolition Man. Could have been great. I assume Jackie Chan probably turned down all the Expendables movies. Uh, he's got it, right? He's yeah. like, is it about, I can't do a Jackie Chan accent, about Chinese oh, artifacts? Be racist. Do <laughs> no, it. I can't do it. I'm no Will Sloan. Anyway, do we have any letters today? We do have a letter. This letter is from Graham Blackaby. Sorry for mispronouncing your name, Graham. And it goes, Hey guys, love the podcast. I wanted to email and ask if you could do an episode on Latter Day Kevin Smith. My reasoning <laughs> behind this is that even though pretty much all of these movies are terrible, they are also becoming more and more bizarre the longer he keeps going. Like most people my age, I enjoy my fair share of Kevin Smith's movies. But seeing him fail so badly at journeyman directing jobs like Cop Out, make a small attempt to stretch himself creatively with Red State, and then make an attempt to stretch a podcast to make an entire movie is really strange and fascinating. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks. Kevin Smith. We talk about Kevin Smith a lot. Yeah, especially off mic. Earlier... In the podcast history, there was about three or four weeks when after recording episodes, we would just go watch a Kevin Smith movie because Kevin Smith was something that I think united both of our like teenage years. Oh, absolutely. Like Clerks is one of those movies that I have a distinct memory of seeing and then going, I need to listen to the commentary track afterwards. Mm. And I had never done that before. And I went and showed friends. It's with those early movies. He like fell into something that just connected with a lot of people, me and Will included. He was kind of like the Gen X slash millennial Woody Allen, or at least that's how it seemed he could have been. Whereas, you know, in Woody Allen movies, they talked about Fellini. In Kevin Smith's movies, they talked about comic books. It seemed very relatable. And the fact that he was not a particularly good filmmaker... Uh, I think gave him a rough gave charm. Gave authenticity. Yes. And... The way that his scripts were kind of so overwritten and had this, like, you know, almost like grade school David Mamet dialogue, it's like, as in Woody Allen movies, everyone is as clever as you want to be. And Kevin Smith was someone at the early stage of the internet that was very accessible to filmmakers. He seemed to be there uh, answering questions and interacting with fans and sometimes also acting like a giant baby, if you will recall... (laughs) Uh, James Silent Bob Strikes Back and there's a whole spiel against the fact that people yelled at him on the internet. Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back was actually fairly well received at the time, which I think is just baffling if you watch it today because it's a piece of shit. But like, I think that has everything to do with the fact that he was just like such a man of the people on the internet. Jay and Silent Bob validated all the stuff people liked about Kevin Smith's films, right? Because, like, hey, there's the guy from Clerks. There's the guy from Mars. Yeah, so much, so much of his movies, too, was that insidery quality. Yes. Yeah. How did they make this movie? Look, there's Mark Hamill yeah. and Jason Biggs. And I don't remember his wife. Um, I think... I don't like Kevin Smith now as a public figure or as a filmmaker. You know, I saw Clerks on Netflix maybe two years ago, and I thought it was pretty good, actually. I thought it held up pretty well. But then we watched Clerks, too. Bad. That movie is not good. Clerks 2 is the one where when I saw it in a theater, I was like, okay, this is maybe... I remember going like, why don't I like this? That was exactly my reaction. Not a good movie. Yeah, like I was watching it. I was so excited. I I got like advanced passes. I was waiting to love it. And as, as I was watching it, I was thinking, God... Everything is here. Yeah. All of the ingredients. Like all my ad, the like the main actors are back. They're talking like, about Star Wars. They're doing. They're doing all the things, and yet somehow I'm not connecting with this. 
I mean, one of the problems of it is it's not authentic. Yes. He knew what convenience stores are like, but he doesn't know what fast food is like. Um, Absolutely. And also the characters are assholes in it. And it's just too, it's too busy. And, you know, it's not funny. Yeah, not funny. There came a point in his his career when he's clearly just imitating himself. I don't like him now as a public figure, as the guy who is like this, like self-appointed fan yeah. Like, his role is basically to show up to Comic-Con and, you know, be be a corporate shill. Be exuberant about everything that's going on. Yeah. He's not negative uh, in any real way, because he can't be, because he's everywhere. He's on the payroll. Yes. Uh, but he poses as the fan. And also, I don't like him. I mean, him. cop out. Cop Out is just fucking awful. And remember when he went off on film critics when Cop Out came out? He's like, how dare you give me a bad review because you didn't pay to see my movie. What What a baby. Like, Cop Out is a movie that, objectively, is awful. Yeah. Like, there is no, like, way that you can watch that movie and go, this is a good movie. Yeah, it doesn't work on any level. No, absolutely not. Did you, did you see Red State? I did see Red State. I thought and it was I, okay. I didn't like it very much, but it was not a Kevin Smith movie. Yeah. And that felt really interesting, I that th- he was stretching muscles that he had never stretched before. And I was all for it, but I didn't like it that much, because it doesn't really work. I, for me, at the time, and maybe if I watched it again, I wouldn't like it, but I thought it was like a serviceable B-movie. Yeah. And it had a, a good Michael Parks, John, John Goodman? Goodman performance. Um, Tusk. Terrible. Um, I like the scenes that have Michael Parks in them. Michael Parks is a good actor, and you know, I, I have a certain I have a certain respect for the audacity of the premise. Um, and Yoga Hosers, which we watched, um, is awful. It it's is one of the worst movies ever made. It's not even like it's tough to make jokes about it because you're just crushed under the weight of its existence. Well, it's like Donald Trump, where the reality of it is its own satire. Yeah. <laughs> you- the way that Kevin Smith talked about it, though, is that when he made Tusk, he was like, I'm going to make a movie real fast with my daughter. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost no money, and we could just can release it quietly, and that'll be it. But for some reason, it became this huge thing that everyone is talking about. It played at Sundance? I mean, that's that's just like, he's been grandfathered into Sundance. Uh... Yoga hosers, the entire last... 30 to 40 minutes take place in one room where some dude is doing impersonations <laughs> forever. Oh, oh, just so bad. Although, you know, the way he... I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> you, you know what I was going to say. No. You know, the way he leeringly shoots uh, certain people with, with his camera in the movie. Yeah, his daughter, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a little unpleasant. And let's just leave it at that. <laughs> What do you mean when they rock out to O Canada oh, on God. the electric guitars? Oh, As a God. friend of ours said, uh, Yoga Hosers is a hate crime to Canadians. So I think there's nothing in Kevin Smith's body of work to suggest that he's improving. And I think there's a lot to suggest that the early movies we liked are not good. I don't think... Ch- Chasing Amy? Well, you know, I haven't seen Chasing Amy in 10 years, and I don't think it would be a good idea to revisit it. No. We, we watched Dogma, you and I, and I'm sorry, not, not very good. <laughs> I don't... Did I... Did I... Did we watch all of it? I don't think we, we did. watched half of it, but I, it. I got the point. It's, yeah, not, it's not getting any better. Man, Ben Affleck, he's a wooden actor. Yeah, he's bad. And just so overwritten and like just such a lumpy, you know, piece of screener. Yeah, Kevin Smith is never Visually, really... it looks like the movie's such an eyesore, you know? I, yeah, he's just a director that never really got better, I guess. And, and I also don't like him as like the guy on Twitter who's like, uh, 10 years married and we still bone like we're what's that famous tweet uh, <laughs> you know are you asking me the man who has a tattooed on his body Will Sloan 
<laughs> so there you go. You got two episodes in one. You got our Kevin Smith episode, which we'll now never do. <laughs> no. I don't, well, what else would we have to say? That's that's it. Yeah. yeah. Next week, we're going to be doing Takashi Kitano. Also known as Beat Takashi. The star of Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> and the upcoming Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> That's right. So we'll be watching Sonatine, one of his classic Yakuza pictures. That was one of those big art house hits in the 90s. Uh, Rogers and Blockbuster shells were choked with copies of Takashi Kitano films. Quentin Tarantino presents Sonatine. Really? Yes. Wow, I do not remember that. Um, and we'll be watching his tap dancing uh, classic, Zadoichi. <laughs> I just want an excuse to watch some of the movies again. Yeah, so I like... actually haven't seen that many of his movies, so Th- I'm looking forward. That surprises forward. me. He seems right up your alley. All right, so as we say every time, go on iTunes, review us, Important Cinema Club. You can subscribe. Um, Write us a letter. Write us a letter, yeah. At Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. We'll read your letter just like we read that Kevin Smith one. And if it's something that kind of lights our fire, we may do, like we do with Kevin Smith, an entire episode about it. Yeah. Who knows what movies we're watching after our recordings now. All right, my name is Justin DeClue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So, like every two weeks, it's time to talk about a Jackie Chan film that we've seen. In this case, we went to the theater and saw Kung Fu Yoga. This is a real golden age of cinema that we're in. We saw Railroad Tigers two weeks ago, Kung Fu Yoga this week. In a week or two, we're going to see the new Choi Hawk, Stephen Chow movie. It's like the 90s all over again. And we were very excited because Stanley Tong was directing this film. And Stanley Tong is the man behind Jackie classics like... Super Cop, um, Rumble First of the Strike. Bronx. Yeah, First Strike, Rumble of the Bronx. He is definitively the person that helped Jackie Chan break into the main- mainstream. He was considered of the kind of like Hong Kong directors, the most cosmopolitan of them. He was the one who... His style was not necessarily Hong Kong specific and he liked to film in exotic places a lot. Sadly, this was his first movie in 12 years. Can you believe that? He was one of the rare Hong Kong directors that actually got a shot at the Hollywood mainstream as well. God, how could I forget? With the Leslie Nielsen classic, Mr. Magoo, which, you gotta admit, is a pretty inventive pick for a director of that franchise. Uh, Franchise? As if there was multiple Mr. Magoo films. What I remember about Mr. Magoo from having seen it literally 20 years ago, that's how long it's been. God, God, where did where did the time go? But 20 years <laughs> you ago... You gotta make time for the Magoo. It, in, in between, you know, the Leslie Nielsen blindness shenanigans, there was some, like, kung fu action because there was a whole plot with, like, jewel thieves in it. Stanley Tong is one of those directors from Hong Kong who also choreographs his own action. He was a stuntman originally. He's famous for doing some of the big stunts like in Rumble in the Bronx that Jackie would then go on to say that he did. Yeah, well, yeah, allegedly the story goes that he... Stanley Tong was the one who jumped between buildings in that famous shot. Yeah, because he always does the stunt first to prove that it's safe, and then the actor can go do it. And I don't know what the situation was, but they just used the take where he jumped, you know, because it looked better than the Jackie one. In Rumble in the Bronx, in the end credits, during the blooper reel, they fake it so that they have Jackie at the other building like doing a little victory dance afterwards. And it's all lies. All lies. So, you know, Jackie keeps people that he trusts close to him, and he was going to mount this Bollywood would extravaganza this this movie was announced it was one of three indian chinese co-productions that were announced during a state visit from india to china so that'll give you some sense of what kind of movie this is it's a movie where people talk about chinese policies in a very earnest way like every jackie chan film for the last seven eight years it's a movie that is how shall we say it a prc propaganda film it is also not to bury the lead very bad yeah it's bad, even though that it's Will 
was like, <laughs> like we said last time, was grasping at crumbs any little bit of action in the movie. And there's not that much. There's about three and a half set pieces. I'm sitting there, and any time there's a shot of at least five seconds where Jackie throws a few punches, I'm, I'm looking at Justin like, ah, that's pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> that's, like, that's like the old days. But then when I got home, I watched the bar fight from Project A on YouTube, and it's like, holy shit. I mean, what? but that was a long time ago, I know, right? He's 62. What do you expect? He looks more tired and sad than any movie I've seen Jackie Chan ever be in. He looks positively youthful in Railroad Tigers compared to what he looks like in Kung Fu Yoga. Uh, he does look old. I would say he looked sadder in Rush Hour 3. Oh, that's true. But, that is the nadir of, like, films that he doesn't want to do. But he definitely, in addition to his physical prowess, he has lost a certain of that Chaplin-esque ebullience that he used to have, that mm. joy of performance. There's this one shot in the film where he jumps over a baggage cart. He at, jumps through a baggage cart. And wow is this moment hyped up in the film <laughs> for this shitty little stunt that he because does. Because you see him standing out there by the hotel, and then you see the two baggage carts come together, and the movie is basically, it's like winding up a baseball that it's going to throw. It's like, here it comes! Here it comes! And he jumps through it. And I remembered the scene in Rumble in the Bronx when he jumps through a shopping cart, which is an amazing stunt, but the movie, like, it's only on screen for like two seconds and the movie doesn't make a big deal of it. And this is nowhere near as good as that and it's the centerpiece stunt. I think that we have to come to terms with a few things watching Kung Fu Yoga. One of them is Stanley Tong, not a good director. No, they're worse. Yeah, they're they're much worse. Yeah. And they don't have the action to kind of, like, soothe our way through the rest of the terrible exposition well, and the non-storytelling. I mean, the scenes between the action... You know, people in the 80s used to laugh at the scenes that didn't have action in Jackie Chan movies, but, like, those... Man, that scene in Police Story where he's, like, juggling the phones looks, like, Oscar-worthy. Oh, my God. In this Kung Fu Yoga... The- First of all, a lot of the dialogue is in English, okay? So you've got people where English is like their fifth or sixth language. Like Jackie Chan? Yeah, like Jackie Chan. He's gotten worse since... Yeah, he can't speak English. Um, It sounds like he's learning these lines phonetically, which he probably is. He's talking to these, like, minor Bollywood actors, including one with whom, like, he almost has a romantic subplot with, but not quite. Kind of, I forgot about it until now. (laughs) But yeah, any scene where two people talk is a problem. And it's so disjointed. Like, new female characters are introduced at every new locale that they go to, and you're like, why? What is going on? And Jackie is, like, 40 years older than anyone else in the movie. It's also a film that ends with a fight for no reason and at the end jackie and the bad guy just pals what's yeah uh, it does end with a bollywood dance number which is kind of cute yes but the last third is basically the last third of indiana jones and the last crusade where but bad but instead of the holy grail it's this golden palace the golden palace like looks like somebody drew it with marker <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that doesn't really bother me because when you watch 80s or even early 90s Jackie Chan films, there's that kind of charming aesthetic decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well, Peter Kaplowski, our friend who we saw it with, was pointing out that the recent Jackie Chan movies have this kind of off-putting plastic look to them that they didn't have before. There was a bit more of a naturalism to the older ones. Yeah, that maybe their incompetence came a little bit more organically, while this one feels like it was fed through a computer. Also, like the plot makes no sense and it looks looks like it looks like it had 20 minutes cut out of it like do you remember the scene early on when they're all you know they're having a fight with the bad guys in the arctic subterranean site which seems like a gangbuster jackie chan fight like in an ice palace 
Beautiful. Yeah. So you see Jackie like punching uh, a henchman until he's knocked out, and then it cuts to the bad guy fleeing, and then it cuts back to Jackie who's now tied up. And How we were like, happen? "What? <laughs> yeah. What's going on?" I thought he had the upper hand. And that's not to say that plot actually matters in Hong Kong films. Tons of them are completely incomprehensible. Doesn't matter because there's a sheer um, energy to what is on screen that can just propel you through it. And something like Kung Fu Yoga just doesn't have that. For me, the prime interest in Jackie Chan these days is just the fact that he's like China's state filmmaker. I've given up hope on seeing him in good movies because he's not he's not willing to make good movies. Uh, he's he's just doing these pale retreads. He of tried what he used to do Shinjuku incident and other stuff like that. Shinju- no one cared. Shinjuku incident was the last uh, the last gasp of it. Ever since then, he he's been the state filmmaker. So the interesting thing is just watching him try to adapt to that role. And do you think that you are feeling your own mortality watching all your heroes kind of fade away? Like, um, for example, you went to go see Michael Keaton in a movie recently, yeah. in The Founder. And when I asked you why you were going, you're like, well, it's Michael Keaton. Yeah. Like, I have to see it. And that is totally based on him being in Batman. I also like him as an actor. Yes, that yeah. too. But do you feel like that's fading away? Like, everybody who's kind of mired in pop culture and loves it as much as we do has that moment where people that you love as kids, like, they can't do what they were doing anymore and have to go on? Oh, definitely. I mean, well, I just feel like in my lifetime I've seen so many people just... I've I've just recently become conscious of the fact that everyone I know has aged dramatically in my lifetime. I feel like my sense of how old people were was set in around 2004. (laughs) Like, give me some examples. Well, like Jackie Chan, for instance. I remember when he was just like pushing fifty. Like when he was when he was Shanghai noon, sh- Shanghai sh- night, and everyone was like, "Well, he's not going to be able to do these stunts too much longer." But you know, who knows what'll happen? Now he's sixty-two, or I don't know, like um, somebody to use another film example. Somebody like Martin Scorsese is seventy-five now, or like he's only got a few more years got, of movie making in him. Like, yeah, or you know, so, somebody like. Woody Allen, whose recent output isn't that good, but it's just kind of like Woody Allen is somebody who, for as long as I've been conscious, has had a movie out every year. And one year, it's just gonna have to stop. There'll it's be gonna, no it's more gonna stop, and that won't be there anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does that scare you a little bit? Or yeah, I mean, it's, you have to deal with it no matter weird. what. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like a lot of the people I like are over seventy now. Yeah, probably. So I'm not happy about that. And. I, we've always talked about this fear that like the people that we like are not going to be replaced by new people th- to take their place. And I mean, you can get very literal when we're talking about like kung fu stars that those don't really exist anymore. Yeah, like, there's no Jackie Chan's or Jenny's. there's no infrastructure to create people like that. And at the same time, are we turning into old fogies where we're like, ah, the pictures used to be better in the '40s and they haven't made anything worth anything since then? I mean, I think it's just natural. The, like to use the example of you know Michael Keaton. Of course, I'm loyal to him because he was Batman. I mean, you know, like the people you like as kids will never be replaced. I'm trying to think if there was anybody that I loved as a kid that I keep going back to, even though, and nothing really comes to mind that much. I just saw the new Jerry Lewis movie, Max Rose on Netflix. Oh, how, how, how could I forget to talk about this? Yeah. I also watched it. Okay. You know, I thought it was actually a bit better than its reputation. I think it was much better than its reputation. And I feel like the movie really used Jerry Lewis's face as a found art object. I mean, you watch, there are so many long close-ups of him. It's like the past of Joan of Arc or something like and his face is just so old and ravaged and lined and there's so much kind of depth of feeling in his expressions. I think that what people brought to the film and what kind of disappointed them is that there's not that much there, right? Right. But when you look at Jerry's face and the way that he's reacting to these fairly basic human events and emotions, that's where it pops. Yeah, and you and he brings so much baggage 
to the film just as a cultural icon. Um, so I was extremely conscious of the fact that, you know, I saw Jerry Lewis on stage once when I was a kid when he was like dancing and stuff. And now I'm looking at him in this movie and he is like barely alive anymore. He's so old. It is one of those movies that you feel every actor should get a chance at. Like yeah. this is Jerry Lewis's like final movie. Yeah. Like he may make another one after that one, but this is the one that people who are fans of Jerry Lewis or want to kind of discover his work. will it'll mean something to them. Yeah. Like a Boris Karloff in targets or something. Like exactly. That, you know? 